Greetings, church family. Nice to be with you again today on the Sabbath. And uh, we have a lot to praise our Lord for. Um, Since I've not had the opportunity myself to to pray, I would like to have a little prayer and then uh, talk to you for a little bit, and we will do a study from the Word of God today. So if you would, please just bow your heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we are very thankful that we can gather here. Lord, we want to exalt thy mighty name because Christ has conquered the powers of the earth. And shall we be afraid of a world that is already conquered? Lord, we want our submission to thee to be complete. We want our love to thee to be complete. I pray that thou speak to us today through thy word. Thou guide our minds, that thou bring our minds and our souls to a higher level of spirituality. That we may be ready to stand in the day of God. And the winding up of the great controversy now at the end of time. To give the loud cry message. To be ready to go home with thee for eternity. Lord, forgive us for lukewarmness, backsliding, and help us to seek with all earnestness Christ and purity of heart and life. Guide my mind and my lips now, and I pray that each of us here will be fed of heaven because Christ has met with us as he has promised. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. We ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'd like for you to turn to the Bible verse that was read for the um, scripture reading. In Nehemiah chapter 4. Nehemiah chapter 4, and, and uh, what is it? verse 14, I believe. Yeah, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. Now, Nehemiah says in this verse, and I would like to go over it again, it's, he says, And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. Now, in this text, there is a a concept here that's repeated often in the Bible, and and if you look carefully, you will see it in this text. It is the, the concept of the cooperation of divine power and human effort. Then I looked and rose up and said to the nobles and to the people and to the Uh, rulers and to the rest of the people be not ye afraid of them remember the lord which is great and terrible that's dependence on divine power remember the lord which is great and terrible and fight for your brethren your sons your daughters your wives and your houses that's the cooperation of divine power and human effort this is a concept I think that we need to bring our, our, our attention back to. Um, you know, it is well in our gatherings or in our own personal study. We, we, we look at the plan of salvation. We seek to understand the great truth of salvation by faith. But we must understand, brothers and sisters, not only how to depend upon God and trust totally in him, but also how to cooperate with him. Okay? 
Now, right in the same chapter here in uh, chapter 4, it says down in verse 9, previous to verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night. Notice, we made our prayer unto our God. That is dependence on divine power. And then it says, and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, watch and pray. Uh, I took note, someone today in Sabbath school mentioned something about the Vatican um, shifting their money around here in the next few weeks. Uh, We may be headed very rapidly for for some very big changes in our world. Uh, Of course, we know that it is not an if, it is simply a when. But with all the things that have gone on with COVID, et cetera, we know that government powers have the ability to really regulate society in a very controlling way. Um, When you read of the papal power in Daniel chapter 11, it says he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and of all the precious things of Egypt. So exactly when this thing is going to come, we don't know. But brothers and sisters, if there was ever a time when we needed to watch and pray, it is now. Now, I would like for us to consider something here. Um, when, this is a verse, or a passage you well know in the book of Revelation. John sees an angel um, ascending from the east, and he cries to the four angels who hold the four winds of the earth. And he says, um, hold the four winds till our servants are sealed in their foreheads. So... I'm going to uh, refer to you what the Spirit of Prophecy says about that passage in principle and then make a comment here. But if you look up here uh, in your uh, testimonies, chapter volume 5, pages 717 and 718, there is a statement that goes basically like this. She says, there is a vast responsibility devolving upon women and pr- uh, men and women of prayer throughout the land. So there's a vast responsibility devolving upon men and women of prayer throughout the land to pray to God that he'll hold back the four winds a few more years so that missionaries can be sent to every part of the world and give the last warning message and and proclaim last warning message uh, against and warn people about disobeying the law of Jehovah. So however all this figures in the mix right now, I don't know. I'm not God. There's a lot I don't know. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. There's a whole lot of people in Cleveland, Ohio, and in the state of Ohio, who don't have a clue about what's to hit the fan in this world as far as world events goes. And they need the warning message. You know, praise God, I think it's since I was here last time, uh, we got together the next day over there in Wycliffe. And there was over 20 of us. It was wonderful to have all that help. And uh, we think we got out at least 6,000 great controversies that day. Um, I remember one young man walking off the property about 6.30, 7 o'clock in the evening. And I was along the street there handing out books. And um, the young man, maybe 18 years old, he became very excited. He said, my friend got this book. And he said, I was wondering where I could get this book, and now I can get it. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So um, last Friday night, thank you, Leslie, for coming to help. 
There was a few of us in Mount Vernon. Uh, in uh, the, there was a public event in Mount Vernon on a Friday evening where people come and mingle, maybe two, 3,000 people and a lot of different vendors and businesses have their booths set along the street. And um, the Lord blessed us. We had, we, I think we had a very blessed time. Uh, the Lord helped us get out well over 300 books. And I'm pretty sure we got out probably about 800 of these brochures. I don't, a lot of you have probably seen this brochure. I think this is a fantastic witnessing tool. Um, I gave the um, book to a lady in the brochure, and I told her, I said, Ma'am, I said, this will give you a lot of hope to read and to listen to. She said, I really need that right now. Now, the following weekend after we were in Wycliffe, uh, there was a couple of us. I was only there a short time. I wasn't there even three hours, but we were in, in the little Italy here in, oh, they call it the little Italy, uh, where the Catholics celebrate the ascension of Mary to heaven, which we to- know is totally not biblical. But anyway, they were there, and we were there to try and help them. Uh, so anyway, we, were, we were kept walking through the crowd and you know, handing out literature and books and things like that. And uh, one man came by, and I told him what the book was about. I said, sir, I said, here's a gift for you. This book will show you what's happening to freedoms in America, how history repeats itself. It explains end-time prophecies, and then what heaven will be like. So he stopped, and he looked at the book a little bit, and he said, he says, I really don't think I will read that book. And I said to him, I said, sir, I said, please, please, at least try it. He said, okay. And he took the book and he walked off. Less than five minutes later, he came back by. He said, I've been looking through this book. He said, this look, book looks very interesting. And he walked back off in the crowd looking at the book. Brothers and sisters, you know what? I would be very happy if my Lord came today and took me out of this world. I've tasted enough of it. And I'm continually in contact with the devil. And I've tasted of this world. I'm done with it. I long for heaven. And I long to be with Christ. I would be happy for that. But let me share something with you. Peter says the reason Christ has delayed his coming is because he's not willing that any should perish. And if there's anybody in this congregation today that is playing with sin or backsliding, I plead with you to turn your life over to Christ. Don't play with it. You've got to get serious about following Christ. There is a world that needs to be saved. There's a world that needs to be reached. And there's a world that needs to be warned. Um, You know, I... uh, Well, I'll be real frank with you. I recently heard a sermon that, in my opinion, was a mixture of truth and error. And I just want to talk to you a little bit. Because one of the reasons we need to watch and pray is because we are under attack from all directions. And let me share something with you. I don't care where you go, even if it's to church, don't leave your brain at the back door and don't leave your prayers at the back door. We must constantly be watching and praying. Um, you know, the Lord's going to have in these last days a group of people that weld and meld together in a powerful unity of love and cooperation. 
But we're also told in the end of time there will be both unity and division in our ranks and that two groups of people will be developed. And we, are, we have been warned that um, we have more to fear from within than from without. Simply because something comes from an Adventist publishing house or an Adventist pulpit is no guarantee that it's from heaven. It might be from hell. You maybe read the statement in the book, Testimonies to Ministers. I'm not sure the page now, maybe page 490, but she says this. She says, many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy, kindled from the hellish fires of Satan. So don't be deluded. Um, We've got to be constantly on guard. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this concept of cooperating with God. All right? By the way, you and I cannot properly or correctly cooperate with God if we are ignorant of his word. We must be constantly seeking a knowledge of God from the light of his word. Psalms 119, verse 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. If we don't have proper understanding from the light of God's word, we will be diverted into darkness. We must continually have that light. And let me tell you one of the things that Satan is a consummate artist at doing, and that is he mixes truth with error. And so be very careful what sermons you say amen to. I may hear a sermon, and I may hear people saying amen to it, but I will not say amen to it because I see laced in that sermon is error along with truth. And that's what Babylon is all about, is uh, truth mixed with error. Look, when we come to Jesus in faith, he will accept us, no matter how weak we are, no matter how sinful we are. He will accept us. He is waiting. In fact, we can go to him, and we can claim his promise in John 6, 37. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There you go. Hang on to that one. And you will be able to conquer the powers of darkness and you'll be able to conquer your own own weakness of faith. When you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, For we are laborers together with God. I haven't counted it myself, but I heard a minister once say he had evidently counted it. He said that is the most quoted text in all the spirit of prophecy. For we are laborers together with God. I want to just uh, think with you and talk with you a little bit today about the importance of the cooperation of divine power and human effort. Okay? I'm, I'm all for the uh, idea that we are to wait on God and depend upon God, but we must take, not take that to an extreme and use that as a license to, to excuse ourselves from our own duty and cooperation with God. Okay? So let's just think a little bit about some of the things the Bible has to say. 
When you go to uh, the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it's a well-known promise. It says in Philippians 1, 6, it says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will what? Will perform it. Okay? So this is a promise we can hang on to. It's God's word. It has creative power. We can be confident. Uh, You know, James said in James chapter 5, he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Okay? God is patient. We are to be patient. But we are to cooperate with God. So Paul Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, if you just take that verse home with you today and you don't hear anything more today in church, that ought to be a tremendous blessing, shouldn't it? Isn't that right? But let's think a little bit more what Paul has to say in the same book. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, probably verse 12, I'd have to remember the verses a little bit. But Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, yeah, that's where it starts. He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, then what does he say? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For what? It is God which worketh in you. You see that? Cooperation, a divine power, and human effort. We are to completely depend upon God, and yet we are to cooperate with God in the work that he is to do, that he wants to do through us. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, I want to share something with you. If you don't have a goal and you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. Isn't that right? Yeah. If you didn't have the address of the church today or some knowledge of how to get here, uh, how are you going to end up here, right? Look, let me share something with you, and, and I probably mentioned this. I know I mentioned something about this last time I was here, but I want to talk to you just very briefly, very briefly about the doctrine in the Bible of perfection of character. Okay? We need to, as I understand it, you know, I'm very limited as a person, but as I understand it, number one, perfection is a Bible doctrine. Okay? Also in the Bible, we have been promised that God will perfect our character. Okay? I, I think it's Psalms 138.8. It says, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. He will. Right? Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto what? Perfection. Okay? Now, if you do not believe that God has power to perfect your character, will your character ever be perfected? 
No, it won't because, number one, you don't believe it. And number two, you won't be cooperating with God to get there. Okay? All right? Now, listen. If someone stands up in the pulpit and they read Matthew chapter 548, be therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect, and they stand up and they tell you that that has, is not talking about perfection of character, and they start to explain that text away, be very careful. You know, I've heard that done more than once. People will read the plain word of God, and then they will set their own opinion above it and contradict it. Now, if, in, if you're in any doubt at all, we have been given an inspired messenger to this church. Her name was Ellen G. White, and if you want to look up what she has to say about Matthew chapter 548, you can find at least a half a dozen statements where she explicitly, clearly presents the fact that Matthew 548 is talking about perfection of character. Okay? It just is. Now, look. Let me me mention something else here, too. According to the Bible... Job 9, 20, and 21. If someone claims to be perfect, they are for certain not perfect. Number one. Okay? Number two. When someone does arrive at perfection of character, they will be unconscious of that fact. Because of their close proximity to Christ, they have such a sense of their own sinfulness and weakness, and they realize their need of constant dependence upon Christ, they are unaware that they are even at that point in their Christian experience. Okay? So these are things that we need to keep straight in our mind. God will perfect our character if we will cooperate with him, but we must seek him for that. But look, brothers and sisters, if you believe that you will keep on sinning until Jesus comes, you will be keep on sinning until Jesus comes. That's right. Yeah, you will. If, if you're like the unbelieving spies and the unbelieving people before they entered Canaan who believed that they couldn't enter Canaan, uh, you know what happened to them? They didn't enter Canaan. And if you believe that your Lord Jesus is not powerful enough to give you victory, weak though you may be over all sin... You know, it's not going to happen. According to your faith, so be it unto you. All right? So look, let's not tremble and fear before the doctrine of perfection, nor of God's requirement for us to perfectly obey him. Let us trust in him, cooperate with him, and depend upon him, and he will fulfill in us what he has promised he would do. Okay? I Let me read a few statements here. I'll give you the references to them. Oh, I'm so sorry. I don't even know what this reference is. OFC. <laughs> There's my ignorance. Anyway, it's OFC. I'm so sorry. I don't know what that is. I got this off my CD-ROM. But anyway, it's page 216. Let me read it. Beholding Christ for the purpose, beholding Christ in his word, right? For I, In his word or words I added. But beholding Christ for the purpose of becoming like him. So beholding Christ for the purpose of becoming like him. It's talking about the Christian seeking God. The seeker after truth sees the perfection of the principles of God's law. Now listen to this. And he, that is the seeker, becomes dissatisfied with everything but perfection. Okay. Now I hope that we will maybe I'll elucidate on this just a little bit. Look, 
If you happen not to cut the slice of bread just right, that doesn't mean you're immoral. Do you follow me? There's perfection of character, there's perfection of morality, and then there's perfection of talent, okay? So let's, let's not confuse this. You know, sometimes, some people, when you talk about perfection of character, they'll say, well, I've never seen anybody who was perfect. Oh, really? That's quite a breathtaking statement. So how are you able to analyze everybody that you've come across, whether or not their character is perfect at all? That's breathtaking. Brothers and sisters, that's God's prerogative alone. Now, you may be able to analyze someone's character that they are not perfect. That may be obvious. But it is not our prerogative to say, I've never met anybody who is perfect. Besides, that's irrelevant to the discussion. The word of God has promised us that he will give us victory over sin. Okay? All right. So it says, beholding Christ for the purpose of becoming like him, the seeker after truth sees the perfection of the principles of God's law, and he becomes dissatisfied with everything but perfection. A battle must be fought with the attributes that Satan has been strengthening for his own use. But he knows that with the Redeemer there is saving power that will gain for him the victory in the conflict. The Savior will strengthen and help him as he comes pleading for grace and efficiency. Okay. Please, please bear with me. I, I want to read to you a little bit here. Now, this is 3SM, page 190, okay? It says this. A failure to appreciate the value of the offering of Christ has a debasing influence. In other words, people are not appreciating the cross and what was done there. And she says that it has a debasing influence, all right? So our minds need to be uplifted and to comprehend this Great thing that Christ did for us. It leads us to receive unsound and perilous theories concerning the salvation that has been purchased for us at an infinite cost. Now listen to this statement here very carefully. I'm going to try and read it carefully. I want you to just kind of let this one sink in. The plan of salvation is not understood to be that through which divine power is brought to man in order that his human effort may be wholly successful. I'm going to read it again. The plan of salvation is not understood to be that through which divine... So the plan of salvation is this. Divine power is brought to man in order that his human effort may be wholly successful. Okay, so here's what the Lord does when we connect with him by faith. He forgives us of our sins. He sends the spirit of God into the life, renews the heart, and the Christian journey begins. And as the Christian continues to trust in God, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith, right? As the Christian continues to trust in God, the Lord is constantly sending in fresh supplies of the presence of the spirit of God and enabling the person to walk in victory. I don't know about you, but I might guess about you. There's been some times in your life when temptation was very cruel. Mm-hmm. But brothers and sisters, don't give in. The sweet experience of victory and a clear conscience is way better than anything the old devil can offer to you. 
Christ's Object Lessons, page 117. We cannot earn salvation, but we are to seek for it with as much interest and perseverance as though we would abandon everything in the world for it. Okay? We can't earn it, but we are to seek for it as though we would abandon everything else in the world for it. All right? Let my brethren be very careful how they present the subject of faith and works before the people, lest minds become confused. The people need to be urged to diligence in good works. They should be shown how to be successful, how to be purified, and their offerings may be fragrant before God. If there is given to the angel of any church a commission like unto that given to the angel of the church of Ephesus, let the message be heard through human agents rebuking carelessness, backsliding, and sin, that the people may be brought to repentance and confession of sin. I'm going to say something here, and then I'm going to read on just a little bit. I I don't really like repeating error, but in this moment I'm going to repeat error, what I consider to be error. Have you ever heard the statement made that it is easier to be saved than to be lost? I just want you to to think about that a little bit. There may be some little bit of truth in that, but the reality of that, in my opinion, I am not going to teach that in my ministry because if I teach that in my ministry, I may leave people with a wrong impression. Do you follow me? Let me ask you this. Which is easier, jumping off a 1,000-foot cliff Or climbing a 14,000-foot mountain. Yeah, it's easier. So To me, that's irrelevant reasoning. And the tendency of statements like that are to, to, to dole out to the indolent and the lazy and the slothful that you can coast into heaven, and you can't. Why, why, does the, why does the scripture say that we wrestle not against flesh and blood? Have you ever been in a wrestling match? When I was in public school, I did some wrestling. Let me tell you something. It takes every bit of power of the human body to contend with another man, especially if he's bigger than you. Okay? We wrestle not, Paul said, with flesh and blood. He says we run a race. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, all but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Okay? Look, let's not be intimidated by the battle. But let's just realize that God requires our complete uh, cooperation. Okay? Let's not cower before the enemy. Let's say Jesus will make me strong. And like Jesus said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Right? Let me read on just here a little bit. The 1SM 380. His power, that means Christ's power, awaits the demand. Did you know you can demand things of God? Wow. Wow. Did you know that the honor of his throne is staked for the fulfillment of his promise? You can go to him with his word and his promises, and you can say, Lord, here is your word. I am not backing off. 
His power awaits the demand of those who would overcome. The reprover is to animate his hearers so that they shall strive for the mastery. He has encouraged them to struggle for deliverance from every sinful practice, to be free from every corrupt habit, even if his denial of self is like taking the right eye or separating the arm from the body. No concession or compromise is to be made with evil habits or sinful practices. Now, we need to kind of start cruising toward the finish here. But I want to read just to you a little bit more, and I want to finish up as best I can. Here's a statement in the in the my book, Mind, Character, and Personality, page 595, where it talks about the temptation to uh, violate the seventh commandment. Are you following me? Okay. If Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and central things, so Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and central things, You realize, brothers and sisters, the devil has more to do with the dress code going on in this world than God does. And it's his ploy to take people to hell. God is not merely vindictive, brothers and sisters, but when you start spreading around what is to be held sacred in marriage, you have a royal mess. It depraves character. You can go on and on with where that goes. There's reasons for the boundaries that God has assigned to the human family in certain things. Okay? So, it says, if Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and central things, bring it back again and place it on internal things. Now, listen. Listen to this. Watch. If Satan seeks to divert the mind to low and central things, bring it back again and place it on eternal things. And when the Lord sees... Because he does see everything. When the Lord sees the determined effort to made to retain only pure thoughts, he will attract the mind like the magnet and enable and purify the thoughts and enable them to cleanse themselves from every secret sin. I think it's pretty exciting. You know, I'd I'd like to, as we wrap up here, I'd like to just think a little bit about a couple of incidents in the Bible. So you read in the book of 2 Kings about, you know, Israel had been attacked uh, by the Syrians and Ben-Hadad, king of Assyria, had warred on Israel and Ahab the weak, immoral, wicked man was killed in that battle. And after that, there was a lot of skirmishes there yet between Israel and the Assyrians. And in one of those skirmishes, there was a little girl caught captive and taken back to the land of the Syrians. And she happened to be assigned the the position of a servant or slave girl in the house of Naaman. And she must have been quite a good girl. Because when she made a recommendation, they took it very seriously. Okay? In the land of her captivity, she conducted herself very well. So Naaman had leprosy, and the little girl said, Hey, she said, There's a prophet in Israel. He can take care of you. So Naaman got all excited, 
asked for permission from the king, collected a bunch of money, big bucks. He marched off to Israel, and he headed right for the king of Israel and had an audience with him. And he said, look, he said, I've come here to get cured of my leprosy. And the king just flew off. He ripped his clothes, and he said, are you trying to start a quarrel with me? Am I God? And anyway, Elisha heard about that, and he said, he said, he, so he invited um, Naaman and his men to come. Elisha didn't step out and look, see him personally, but he sat on a messenger, and he said, look, <clears throat> he said, go to the river Jordan and dip seven times. <clears throat> and he says, you'll be made whole. And that really got under Naaman's skin. He says, you mean to tell me you want me to go dip in that dirty river? He said, I thought you would do something wonderful like come out here and strike your hand over my my leprosy and call on the name of God and heal me. He said, can't you send me to some better rivers? And he named a couple. And he was ticked and he started down the road. Well, the men that were with him were thinking a little more clearly than he was. They said, hey, if he'd asked you to do some great thing, wouldn't you have done it? I mean, you've come all the way here. They said, why don't you just at least go and dip seven times? So he said, okay. And the way I understand the story, he dipped three times, five times, six times, and zero happened. When he dipped the seventh time under God's command, he came up out of that river completely healed. Brothers and sisters, here's the point. Don't give up. Go all the way through. He that endureth unto the end, the same shall be saved. In the life of the same prophet, you have just about the time before he died. Um, Elisha, um, was visited by King Joash, the king of Israel. And uh, inspiration says that he was an idolater. He was not worthy of his position, at least when it came to character. But he still had something in his heart that was reaching out after God. And he recognized in the person and the prophet of Elisha a greater power to defend Israel than all the armies of Israel. And as he came to visit Elisha the prophet, he wept over him. And he said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And, and the, uh, at that time, the Assyrians were not too far off, encamped, uh, evidently ready for battle. And uh, Elisha said, he said, look, he said, open that window. He take, said, take your bow and arrow. And he said, shoot that bow out over the field towards the east, I believe it was. And as the bow flew from the or I'm sorry, the arrow flew from the bow over the field. Elisha made a prediction, and he said, you will smite the Syrians or the Assyrians, and you will beat them, win. But after the arrow was shot and the prediction was made, the prophet tested Joash's faith, the king of Israel. And he said, I want you to take your arrows and smite the ground. And he went, whack, Whack, whack. And the prophet became upset. He said, you should have hit in the ground at least five or six times. He says, now you're only going to beat the Assyrians three times, when if you would have hit the ground five or six times, you would have 
beat them five or six times. Now, I want to read to you the inspired um, comment on that here in the book, Prophets and Kings, page 263. The lesson is for all in positions of trust, what, what we just looked at here. When God opens the way for the accomplishment of a certain work and gives assurance of success, the chosen instrumentality must do all in his power to bring about the promised result. In proportion to the enthusiasm and perseverance with which the work is carried forward will be the success given. God can work miracles for his people only as they act their part with untiring energy. He calls for men of devotion to his work, men of moral courage, with ardent love for souls and with a zeal that never flags. Such workers will find no task too arduous, no prospect too hopeless. They will labor on undaunted until apparent victory is turned into glo- apparent defeat is turned into glorious victory. Not even prison walls, nor the martyr stake beyond, not even prison walls, nor the martyr stake beyond, will cause them to swerve from their purpose of laboring together with God for the upbuilding of his kingdom. I'm going to tell you a story, quote a text, and I'll be done. Some of you went to West Salem Mission camp meeting. Okay. And we heard this dear, godly man, Pavel Goya. I want to tell you one of the stories he told. So, before I tell you that story, I'm going to tell you what he asked his father one time. So he, he has kind of a different system. He says he has to get a little something to eat every four hours all around the clock. He doesn't eat much, but he has to get a little something. So during the night, he would get up two or three times, get a little something, banana or something, eat, go back to bed. He said every time he went by his father's room, he'd see his father on his knees praying at night. And one time he said to his father, he said, when do you sleep? His father said, between prayers. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, they decided they needed to build a church. Because their church was just a shamble. And uh, they knew it was illegal. They knew the government. Uh, the country, I think it was Romania, communist country. Huh? Oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, so what they did is they left. They built a new building behind the front wall of the old building of the church. So the old building, the front wall was there. And they built an, And they did it at night without light and without sound. They were quiet. So they actually had to work in the moonlight. And they kept working on it. One night, the police came banging on the gate, banging on the gate. His father went out the gate, and they said, they said, this is the police. Let us in. He said, well, do you have a warrant for my arrest? They said, no, but let us in. He said, well, you don't have a warrant for my arrest. I'm not going to let you in. He said, you go get a warrant, a warrant for my arrest, then I'll let you in. Bang, bang. They left and never came back that time. Evidently, it was a few months later they came back, and this time they got in, and they got his father, and they hauled him off to the, uh, off to the police station, rather. They said, look, they said, we've heard you've been distributing Bibles. He said, yes, I have. They said, well, you have got to stop distributing Bibles. His father was very active in getting Bibles into the country and distributing Bibles. His father said, I am absolutely not going to stop distributing Bibles. So in the process, I don't remember all the details, but in the process of that interview there, one of the officers took a gun out, cocked it, and put it right to his head and said, you must stop distributing Bibles. Okay? And he threatened to shoot him right there. And his father said, wait. He said, before you shoot me dead, he said, at least let me take off this nice new shirt I have. At least you can give it to someone. You won't at least mess up this shirt. And it just blew the man away. His father was absolutely unintimidated in the very face of death. So the police officer called the governor of the city, and he said, look, he said, we got a guy here. He's crazy. Uh, They just couldn't. 
the, and the governor said, look, he said, make an example out of him. He said, execute him. So I don't know how, exactly how much time transpired. It wasn't very much time at all. A little bit later, a phone call came into the police station, and the, the, it was the man second in command of the city, and he said, have nothing to do with this man because the Spirit of God is resting upon him. And the police officer receiving the call said, what? He said, you're a communist? And you say the Spirit of God? He said, what do you say? He said, yes. He said, have nothing to do with that man. He said, the Spirit of God is resting upon him. He said the, the governor of the city, after he gave the command for Mr. Goya's execution, got in a vehicle to go on an errand, and he was instantly killed by a truck that hit him. He said, I have nothing to do with the man, and they let him go. You know, we're told in the book Prophets and Kings that if God's people will be faithful to him, there is no power in the world that can stand against her. We need God's power. We must, we must be loyal to him. We must be on his side. Hmm? May God help us in these last days. There's a precious work to be done. There's so many people out there, brothers and sisters. We need to be moved with compassion. They need help. They need to hear that Jesus will forgive them of their sins. They need to be given a good book, a good piece of literature. Yeah. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Nay, in all these things, Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. God bless you. Be faithful. And let's keep praying and fighting the battles of the Lord.